This is John 5, 1 to 19. Um, I'm not sure what this translation is, but it's super conversational. I like its narrative style. So John 5, 1 to 19. It's the, uh, it's the inclusive version. That yeah, we're... cool. Yeah. I like it. It sounds like someone's sitting at a campfire telling a story. So I'll go for that vibe. Now, sometime after this, there was a Jewish festival and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, there's a pool with five porticos. Its Hebrew name is Bethesda. The place was crowded with sick people. Those were blind, lame or paralysed, lying there waiting for the water to move. An angel of God would come down to the pool from time to time and stir up the water. The first one to step into the water after it had been stirred up would be completely healed. One person there had been sick for 38 years. Jesus, who knew this person had been sick for a long time, said, do you want to be healed? Rabbi, the sick one answered, I don't have anyone to put me in the pool once the water's been stirred up. By the time I get there, someone else has gone in ahead of me. Jesus replied, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. The individual was immediately healed and picked up the mat and walked away. Now, this happened on a Sabbath. Consequently, the temple authorities said to the one who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry that mat around. The healed one explained, but the person who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. They asked, who is this who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The healed person had no idea who it was, since Jesus had disappeared into the crowd that filled the place. Later on, Jesus met the individual in the temple and said, remember now you've been healed. Give up your sins so that something worse won't overtake you. The healed one went off and informed the temple authorities that Jesus was the one who had performed the healing. Uh, it was because Jesus did things like this on the Sabbath that the temple authorities began to persecute him. Jesus said to them, Abba God is working right now and I'm at work as well. Because of this, the temple authorities were even more determined to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but worse still, he was speaking of God as Abba, that is, Papa, and thereby making their relationship one of intimacy and equality. This was Jesus' answer. The truth of the matter is, the only begotten can do nothing alone, but can only follow Abba God's example. For whatever Abba does, the only begotten does, and does in the same way. So over to you, what were things, any things that stood out for you in this passage, things that you noticed and things that you wondered about it? I, I wonder what about all the other people around the pool? Did Jesus heal any of them? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like that um, Jesus said his relationship with God is one of intimacy and equality and that that was shocking. To yeah. the yeah, to the leaders. Yeah. Thanks, Percy. Rose. For me, um, the the line um, where Jesus says, "Stand up, pick and your pick up your mat and walk," and then the the individual was healed, um, placed into a bit of my baggage from a long time ago when I had chronic fatigue syndrome, and I had numerous people tell me, "You have to have faith first, and then you'll be healed." Like you haven't got a full-time job because you haven't applied for one. If you apply for a full-time job, then God would give you the energy to do that. Hmm. Um, and so even, you know, just sort of reading that, I mean, you know, Jesus didn't require that. 
Um, he just healed the person first and then they were able to do stuff. So maybe that's a bit of a personal baggage one for me, but I love the way that Jesus was gentle with this man and, and didn't do, yeah, didn't require really anything from him. And there's that strange one which says, um, give up your sins so something worse won't overtake you. So it's that very idea, you know, that that idea of sin, sickness equals sin and non-sickness equals righteousness or blessing. It's very confusing. Yeah, I agree. It's funny, last, um, a couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at another story from John, the story of the, the Samaritan woman at the well. And we had the same conversation where we felt like the action of the story and the dialogue didn't really fit. Um, it <laughs> seemed at odds. And, um, and this is also, you know, what Jesus is saying here is kind of at odds what he says what, with what he says in John 9 a few chapters later when the disciples say, you know, this blind person, is it because of their sin or their parents' sin that they're blind? And Jesus says, neither. What are you talking about? It's so that God can be glorified through a healing. So, yeah, I, I agree, Mark. I find <laughs> that line particularly confusing and it really jars uh and i it's do very wonder jarring again, isn't it like yeah. whoa what, where'd that come from and i do wonder again i mean this is very heretical but i wonder if years later john remembers the story and he can't remember the dialogue so he just puts in some stuff which mm. <laughs> for us really jars but anyway that's probably not what happened everyone <laughs> well, whoever was dictating it to thought oh i'll just add this little bit in <laughs> exactly <laughs> gotta be something about sin here surely yeah <laughs> And it also made me wonder, like, what was his particular sin? Because he's been sick lying by the lake for 38 years. So yeah, not much opportunity. Yeah, what's he been doing in that time? <laughs> what's in his library book? Give up. Yeah. Amy, you're going to say something? Oh, yeah. It's similar to Kat. I wonder, like, Jesus knew more about this guy than this person then is told here, obviously. So I wonder what the sin was and whether it was something where like this would make sense like maybe it was a violent sort of maybe they would they had lived a violent life and that's how they got injured and it was like well hey you got hurt you were hurting other people maybe don't do that anymore yeah like you never yeah i wonder i'm i'm, I'm trying to make sense of it because it's jarring to me too I'm like jesus jesus couldn't have just been implying that he's sick because he's sitting yeah what, i think it, yeah i think that shows more creative fidelity to to scripture amy where you're going no it's not it's not a, just a flat contradiction. It's that Jesus is dealing with a different situation. And that yeah, it's kind of fits, a... Fits in with what Justification. Nice. <laughs> I also wondered, um, it just just a thought about the um, the healed person running off and writing him out to the temple authorities at the first sight, first chance he got. First chance they got. Was that just self, um, uh, self-preservation if they... Weren't, didn't want to take responsibility for breaking the Sabbath themselves. Mm. But yeah, it's that hilarious on. pattern that you see in the Gospels of Jesus constantly telling people, uh, just make sure you don't do this thing and they straight away go and do it. <laughs> yeah. Which is a, yeah, it's this fantastic uh, illustration of, I guess, human autonomy, um, human will in the face of Jesus, like the, the wind and the storms and the demons and all these other things just do exactly what Jesus wants them to do. It's just the human beings that don't. <laughs> Anything else that people wanted to say before we? Oh, sorry. Move on. 
Um, I was just thinking about also how the authorities weren't that interested in the fact that he was healed. They were only interested in the fact that he wasn't obeying the Sabbath and that Jesus wasn't obeying the Sabbath. So they've latched onto these like very this very legalistic view that they just can't see outside of, even mm. in the face of this guy who was walking after 38 years of not walking. Yeah. Like they don't say, oh, my God, you're walking. That's amazing. <laughs> They're like, don't carry your mat. Yeah. It's like a sketch comedy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing with your mat? Yeah. Mm, exactly. Um, so as always, we've kind of touched on everything that I wanted to say today anyway, um, but I will just because you pay me the big bucks, I will share um, a few of the things that I, what I wrote down on my um, Google Doc. Uh, but, yeah, thank you for those contributions. They're all wonderful and very much, you know, uh, your thoughts very much sort of connecting with mine about this passage. Um, so uh, we'll come back to the passage in a bit. Um, just want to remind us of what we're doing in the series, and that's it's Advent coming up to um, Christmas and the celebration of Jesus' birth. And so our theme for this series, our Advent series, is why is the coming of Jesus good news? Why is it still good news? And how can we um, think about it perhaps in different ways that make it feel like better news than perhaps it has done for some of us in the past? Um, and uh, what I want to focus on uh, this week is something that, came up in the first week of the series when we were talking to people about their understandings of Jesus and understandings of Jesus that they grew up with. And it's it's something that Kat, Kat and I mentioned, um, which is that um, we talked about the creeds that we grew up with and said every week at church uh, and the way that the creeds jumped from Jesus' birth to Jesus' death and had no place for Jesus' life and ministry at all. And so the, the one that I grew up with was, um, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. Uh, and, and it finishes with, um, he's seated at God's right hand and from there will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Um, so you, you've got this creed where Jesus' first incarnated day is mentioned and his last incarnated day is mentioned when he is crucified and the 33 years in the middle are kind of bracketed off. Um, and I think there are consequences of that. There certainly were for me and in the, in the church I grew up with where Jesus' sacrifice for our sins became the whole purpose of incarnation. Um, and then it becomes all this kind of fu pure future focus, resurrection and life everlasting. And the implications of the way Jesus lived for the way that we should live now are kind of skated over. It's not like they're missing entirely. You don't want to, I don't want to caricature our church experiences like that, but, but they're just um, bracketed off quite a lot. Um, and you realise that looking at a creed like this, it's, it's no wonder, as I, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that for so many of us, 
we were in churches where the, the focus was entirely on sin um, because Jesus, instead of being a human being, was mainly a mechanism, a, a sinless lamb worthy to be sacrificed on our behalf. And so the whole focus of faith became on the sins we were committing that, needed, that we needed to be forgiven for. Um, now, it's not that there's no place for the language of sin and sacrifice and redemption for us, but the problem is what's excluded, uh, the language of, of creation and new creation that we see in Genesis 1, that we see in Revelation. It's like that's what brackets the whole story of redemption, creation and new creation, and yet that bracketing story is lost and all, all we have is this story of sin and redemption. Um, and I think the effect of that personally for me and I think for a, lot, for a lot of us was just this deep anxiety about sinfulness and imperfection, being really scrupulous about our sinfulness in a way that was paralysing. Uh, and I think that's what, you know, what Kat is, was referring to with the religious authorities is that um, such a fixation with, with sin and rules and rule-breaking and the, and the policing of rules, that you miss everything else. You miss these miracles. You miss these um, acts of, of creation that are happening all the time and all around us. And so in a passage like the one we read today, the danger is that, that we, um, like the... Um, the religious authorities um, see it just as a story of, of sin. I mean, in their case, they're seeing it as Jesus breaking the rules. We can just see it as a rescued sinner who has, has to be careful not to fall back into an even worse sin. Um, but we miss everything else that's going on in the story. We miss what uh, the question that Warwick raised and the question of why why this person and not all the other people? There are many, many people around this pool. Why does Jesus choose that one person? That's, that's not the action of someone that's going, okay, what are the rules here? What do I do? It's the action of someone who's engaging with a very particular situation and engages with it in a very particular and unexpected way, choosing this one person and engaging with them, healing them. And for reasons that are not explained, uh, not engaging with with all the other people there that from from our perspective would be in the same level of of need so it creates a really interesting question for us why this person and not the others and it's a question that can't be answered just by looking at kind of sin and law categories it's something else going on here um <coughs> so we'll come back to that in a in a in a second um just for a second, I wanted to, um, to talk about a couple of images that I think might be helpful for us to think about the, these two different uh, views of God, these two different views of, um, of what the, the story of the Bible is about. Um, as, I, as I thought about the view of God and the view of the incarnation that I grew up with, um, I thought about um, the, the idea of the, the panopticon. I'm going to share my screen. I haven't done that for a while. I'm going to share my screen. I'm going to show you a panopticon. There it is. Can you see that? <laughs> so it's this, it's this 
a form of prison that was invented by Jeremy Bentham back in the day. Um, and uh, the idea is that you've got a, in that little tower in the centre, you've got a, a, a prison warder. And then in all these cells around, you've got the prisoners and all of them are visible to that warder at all times. And, but they don't know if they're being watched or not because they can't really, they can't see the warder. Um, and it just, <laughs> this is the image that I, I kind of grew up with of my relationship with God, that God was this like a prison governor or prison warder who was constantly watching me uh, and watching us all and um, keeping an account of the ways in which we were failing. Uh, and that in this model, Jesus is, is like literally like a model prisoner who, who comes in and is able to follow all the rules and therefore through that we get um, forgiven. Um, is that a, <laughs> you may have grown up with quite a different image um, that dominated your view of God and your relationship with God, but does that resonate with anyone, that idea of you know, kind of the hypervigilance that's required by being under the harsh scrutiny of a judgmental God all the time? Um, and I think it it just creates this intense level of of anxiety and 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 fixation on on our own behaviour in a way that is paralysing. Um, and it occurs to me that if we if we use a different image, like God as a gardener looking for collaborators rather than a prison warder, and Jesus showing us in, in his life a model of what it is to collaborate with God's creativity. Um, and, and if we imagine that this is what God has been trying to say to us all the time, that you are my beloved child and I want you to help me to tend the garden of creation and make it flourish, then suddenly all of that anxiety um, drops away. And we're left with um, an incredible freedom and an encouragement to be really attentive and attuned to what God is doing in each moment so that we can collaborate in that, um, that tending of creation and creating flourishing and creating new life. Um, and I do, I, want, I, I guess that's my sense is, <clears throat> that what's happening in this story in John is exactly that. It's, it's not Jesus in this anxious state of wanting to be obedient to God, but it's Jesus entering into this situation and seeking to tune into what God is already doing in this situation, in this moment, tuning into to who God wants to draw Jesus towards. Um, and not, <clears throat> and, and hence, approaching that one person and and not the others, um, because in his attunement to God, he realizes that that this is what God is is doing in this moment. This is what God's Spirit is calling him towards <clears throat> in that moment. Excuse me. Um, He, Jesus in this story looks like someone who is 
taking in a unique and complex situation and doing something very particular and unexpected. And that's why he heals one person out of many. Um, does that make sense? Um, and I guess if it makes sense, how might shifting from kind of this panopticon view of God and us to a, a garden, collaborative, creative view of our relationship with God and what Jesus is incarnated to show us, how might that change the way we live as followers of Jesus? How might it change um, how we feel and what we do? You may not have any immediate thoughts, but it, it, even, even just uh, reflecting on that just for a minute might be a useful thing to do before I talk briefly about another story and then we have communion. But did anyone have any, any thoughts or reflections? It's okay if you don't. Um, I was just thinking, Raj, while you were talking about this, um, about I think a few weeks ago, or maybe even months ago now, you also talked about how it's really hard to get tone right when mm. you're reading these texts and how if you have if you have the panopticon view, then whenever Jesus says something like don't sin or repent or whatever, um, if you think of it as a judgment tone, it has one meaning. Mm. But if you think of it, if it's said with a tone that's of love, um, you know, like <laughs> say if you've got someone in your life who's doing something that's not good for them, you don't say to them in a tone of judgment, please, you know, don't do heroin or whatever. You say, please stop doing heroin because I love you and I want you to be safe and, you know, treat yourself well. So, like, even just, like, shifting that tone from the judge to the gardener changes so much of this story. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's what I was thinking. Of. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And there are, there are moments, you know, when Jesus says, oh, perverse and faithless generation, how long will I have to put up with you? Or it's hard to read the tone in, in, a, in a loving way. But, um, yeah, Jesus does sound quite judgy sometimes, but I... I agree. I think if there's an amazing shift that's possible there. If we see Jesus as reacting from, from sadness and exasperation at what we're missing out on rather than, um, yeah, scolding us as naughty children. Um, and there's that beautiful passage where Jesus looks at Jerusalem and says, how I long to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you think, yeah, that, that to me is the tone that I feel like we need to hear uh, from Jesus when, when he starts to get frustrated. And even those lines, like, oh, perverse generation or whatever, there's a real difference with, like, a thunderous, finger-pointing shout versus just a frustrated muttering under your breath. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, come on, guys. Like, that's a whole different, there's yeah. a fiction behind the second one. Absolutely. Yeah. The other story I want to um, talk about and remind us of is, um, is the beautiful story of the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. Um, I'm particularly thinking of the version in Mark, Matthew and John and not the version in Luke. 
And again, this is so interesting the way the versions are different and there's a different take. Luke has a real sin-based take on this story, whereas in, in Matthew and Mark and also in John, the, the woman comes in and she uh, pours this incredibly expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and the people say, oh, what a waste. That could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And Jesus just says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. And it, it just strikes me that, that this is Jesus affirming what we've been saying. Jesus saying, don't have this rule-based, is this right or wrong, approach to fidelity to God, but approach it more in terms of creativity, in terms of beauty, in terms of attunement to to what God calls us to. And that will that will lead to behavior that is often really surprising, often unexpected, but which is is beautiful and in, in tune to God. And there can be such a deadness to, to a, um, a rule-following faith, which I, I don't see in Jesus' life. I see this in, incredible outbreaking of creativity and, and newness in the way Jesus engages. And I think that's because of that attunement to God's spirit in each moment. Um, and this, this woman's action is, is the action of a creative collaborator with God, not an anxious rule follower. Um, it's not that selling the perfume and giving it to the poor was, was wrong in this instance. It's just that there may be many, many beautiful ways of acting in attunement with the spirit of God in a given moment. Uh, and that if we approach situations with incredible anxiety about getting it right or wrong, then um, we won't be in a position to be attuned to those creative and beautiful possibilities. Um, so just to finish then come back to sin and redemption as i said there's no it's not that i'm saying that there's no place for this language of sin this language of redemption in our faith but it's just that we need to add creation and faithful collaboration language to it um, so that we end up with a much more positive vision than constantly being on the lookout for sin in our lives um, if we have more of that, that image we talked about a few years ago of, of listening for the heartbeat of God in each moment, tuning into what God is doing each moment and being a faithful ally to God in whatever way we can um, and realising that that may be different from moment to moment, um, listening and creativity rather than just perfectionism and unchanging rules. The law of... The law of love never changes, but what love looks like in each moment will be quite different. Um, and perfectionism just gets in the way of the kinds of risks that love and faithfulness require. Um, love always leaves room for getting things wrong and for repairing. That's the role of forgiveness. Um, so to finish, I just want to return to anxiety. I've been talking a lot about anxiety this morning, but I think it's very important because I think if, if we were brought up with anxiety and self-condemnation as the fundamental emotional landscape of our faith, a few new images about creativity and participation are not going to change that instantly. 
um, an anxious mind can turn talk of being a creative collaborator into a, another source of anxiety. Uh, you know, I'm not spending enough time in solitude and silence tuning into the loving heartbeat of God. I, I'm too preoccupied with mundane concerns to be attuned to what God might be doing in this situation or this conversation or this relationship. Um, and as Kat said, you know, if we read the Gospels, it's easy for our anxious mind to turn Jesus' frustration into to judgment of us. Um, and, yes, he does sound quite judgy a lot of the time. Um, and so it, I think it requires some, some deeper work for us to, um, to try to find ways of, of a non-anxious fidelity to God. Um, and that's what I, I guess I'm trying to do in my life is, is do some serious work on myself and try to cultivate less anxiety and more self-compassion. And that, I, I'm finding that really helping. Um, and I do, I do wonder if for us the best way to think about becoming more faithful like Jesus is, is like um, deepening a practice like meditation. Uh, it, for anyone that's tried to develop a practice of meditation, you'll realise that self-judgment does not help at all. It just undermines our ability to persist in the practice. And faithfulness fundamentally is about persisting in these practices that Jesus teaches us. And if, if we have emotions that are making it impossible to persist, then we can't be faithful. So it's actually an act of faithfulness to not be anxious, but to try to be self-compassionate, um, to treat things like praying for our enemies as, as an, an experiment in practice. Go, okay, for five weeks, I'm just going to try to do this. If I'm not able to do it on any particular day, that's okay, but I'm just going to try and persist with this practice and try to have an emotional life that helps me to persist rather than being an obstacle to that. Um, I, hope that I hope that makes sense. Um, just one thing to say to finish, and that is um, that sometimes talk like this sounds like um, we're encouraging a kind of therapeutic faith one that's just all about me feeling as a, as a privileged white person, feeling okay about myself and ignoring the, the structures around me that are very sinful. Um, but it, it's not meant to be that. We still need to fight empire. We still need to stand with the outcast. We still need to face up to the systems of oppression that we are caught up in. It's just that paralyzing anxiety and self-condemnation is not going to help us do that. So it's not about pretending that those things don't exist, but it's about cultivating self-compassion and um, being realistic about the effects of anxiety and self-condemnation on our ability to stand with the oppressed and to face up to, this, to the systems that we are um, implicated in. I hope that, I hope that um, in some ways rings true to people, makes sense to people. Um, I'm conscious of the time, it's 12, so I won't open it up again to comments. But if there's anything that you, you want to feedback about this or any questions that you have, feel free to stick around afterwards and chat um, or send me an email if you have to go. Uh, but to finish then, let's have um, some communion. Uh, 
I forgot to remind you to get a, a cracker or a drink or something like that earlier, but hopefully you've got something, um, even if it's just a, a cup of tea to do communion with. Um, so as always, we just eat and drink whatever is to hand, um, but this morning as we do it, uh, as we reflect on Jesus' incredible sacrifice on our behalf, um, Jesus' death, we recognise that life is full of, of violence, life is full of, of horror, um, life is full of injustice, um, but that our own self-condemnation doesn't deal with that <laughs> at all. It just contributes to it because it's a form of self-violence. And if we, we truly want to, to stand in solidarity with a crucified Jesus, stand in solidarity with crucified people around the world, we don't do so through self-condemnation, but we do so through love and self-compassion and compassion for others. So let's reflect on that. Pray on that as we eat and drink together.